Hello and welcome to Design Unmuted, a podcast that centers marginalized voices in design, art, and all things creative. I am your host, Divine, a landscape designer and social critic. Hello and welcome back again for another episode of Design Unmuted. Today, my guest is Walter Hood, and I am very honored to have him speak with me today. Walter Hood is an award-winning landscape architect, artist, and is the creative director at Hood Design Studio. Hood Design Studio is a social art and design practice based in Auckland, California, and founded by Walter Hood in 1992. Welcome, Walter. Thank you, Divine. Yeah, I would just like you to introduce yourself, maybe in ways that you choose to do so, uh, to our audience, maybe things that are not easily found uh, from a Wikipedia search or a Google search or your website. <laughs> <laughs> tell, us, tell us something we don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I could tell you something you don't know, but um, you know, my background is I have different pedigrees and I, I don't particularly silo myself in either one. So mm -hmm. I'm not a landscape architect. I'm not an architect. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I would say I'm more of an artist and designer in the broadest sense. Uh, right. and, I choose to, and I choose to do that or say that because I don't want to be marginalized. And right. I think as a person of color, it's very easy to become marginalized within one space. And mm -hmm. to do the work, I have to be in all the spaces. <laughs> right. So, hello. How am I explaining that? <laughs> all right. So, lesson one, do not box Walter into uh, any category. <laughs> There you go, there you go, there you yes. go. Yes. Actually, I wanted to ask you, before we get uh, started into the serious talk, um, I want to know with uh, how difficult this this year has been and the pandemic, um, have you had any silver lining story or any guilty pleasures you've adopted to cope? Ah, guilty pleasures. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, prior to the pandemic, I was traveling probably about 150,000 miles a year. Oh, wow. So I was probably eating out probably 300 days out of 365. Oh, boy. So I've only been to a restaurant three times in the last year. Oh. Right. And so I've I've done a lot of cooking. And so I've really gotten into cook. I'm sure everyone has. But yeah. I've gotten into to cooking and kind of consistency. I don't think I've eaten as much tuna. <laughs> for lunch if I, uh, you know, since I was a kid. But um, it's been a year of introspection and I'm working on three books. One's already out mm -hmm. and two more to go. And so it's been a really fantastic time to kind of be in incubation. We also were part of uh, the MoMA exhibit, uh, Reconstructions, which also I worked on throughout the year as well that just opened mm -hmm. in January. So I've kind of been a lot in my head the last year yeah. trying to kind of uh, come to terms with where we are and the projects that I was writing about, of course, during the past year, you know, they kind of went in a different direction. <laughs> the the right. books went in a different direction. So. Like better than expected? Um. It encouraged me to talk in broader terms about our profession, and particularly mm -hmm. in my book, uh, Hybrid Landscapes, that the University of Virginia is publishing, which is about my work over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. I kind of opened up the kind of post-colonial 
uh, kind of vacuum and talk more about, you know, how how to deal with the post-colonial hyphen, right? That we're still in this post-colonial sort of time, and that we right. have to be very careful of language. We have to be very careful of how, you know, we res- resuscitate these typologies of colonialism. And right. so this this is things that we don't talk about in our profession. So Absolutely. the book will address a lot of these issues. Yeah, I, I think your work addresses these issues uh, already. And um, I actually wanted to to ask you, uh, because you engage a lot with memory and culture um, in your work, and it's very evident, um, to take us back uh, at the time when you were before you started uh, Hood Design Studio, and uh, maybe share some backstories and what was the impetus behind starting uh, Hood Design Studio? Um, well, I, you know, was working, was trained on the East Coast, um, and I've worked. My first big job in in the profession was for the National Park Service um, mm-hmm. in Washington D.C. Um, and then I left there, moved to Philadelphia and worked, you know, in kind of on urban parks in New York and Philadelphia before I came back to graduate school. Because at a certain point, like six years after my undergraduate, six or seven years, it just mm-hmm. felt like, you know, the work that we were doing didn't make any sense because right. it was like going, it was just like I, we were working for money. That was it. Right. You right. made a project based on how much budget you had and then you made a project. And it felt like there was something missing. And then I came to California and one of my mentors, my earlier mentors were Garrett Ekbo. And he was like one of the fathers of what we call modernism in America. Um, you know, he was a white, white guy who's in his, I think he's probably in his late 60s when I met him. And I researched assistant for him as he was writing his final book. And having someone of that stature actually take me in was really really powerful as a young black guy and with an old white man who was like you know a kind of an emblem of the profession but he bestowed a couple things in me he told me very early he said walter your work can be socially responsible but it could also be beautiful and that's the first time someone ever told me that Mm -hmm. because if you look at the kind of work in which you know people who say they're social responsible in their work it's all about it's never about beauty it's all about you know paternalism it's all about saying i know what's right for people it's always about taking care of someone versus trying to be inspirational and powerful in your vision to uplift Mm -hmm. people because i find that you know people in the marginal circumstances they are the ones who need to be uplifted versus Mm -hmm. we're spending all of our time on the privilege trying to uplift privileged people which is like a waste of time but uh But he was, you know, just this really great, uh, how can I say, mentor. And, you know, he, every week I would go, he would give me a book. He'd say, read this, read this, <laughs> read this. And it was a great education that was paired with, you know, the, the university, which was, you know, I was the only black person in the program, you know, and it, it was a great place for space for me to be, to come back to be in this other context where, People just were not talking about the things that I was interested in. And yeah. then I went to work for uh, one of my teachers who I never had a class with because he was on sabbatical, Randy Hester, who is kind of like known for community participation. 
Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote this book on neighborhood design. He had 12 steps, you know, you do these 12 steps, you know, you're, everything is fine. So I worked mm -hmm. for him in like the Northeast in places like uh, outside of Portland, Oregon, you know, in these like really weird Northwestern landscapes, right? Where of course, you know, no one looked like me, right? But we were doing mm -hmm. these community design projects. And so that was kind of my initiation towards really thinking about how to construct a practice that was really culturally centric, right? Those mm -hmm. two places, one from design and the other from kind of social factors. And so when I was hired at Berkeley, I thought I wanted to do ethnographic research and I was just not good at it because it, I find it boring <laughs> just to, you know, <laughs> just to be like interviewing people. I mean, I found it interesting, but I just found research boring. And so yeah. I said that I want to have a design practice, you know, like some of my other faculty and that I wanted to use my practice as a research, a place for research. So mm. Hood, Hood Design actually started out as kind of my research studio to get tenure at Berkeley. And so right. I, you know, I did exhibitions, did writings, you know, lots of lectures and things like that to to kind of find my voice. And most of the projects were fictitious. Most of them were back in the 90s. We called it paper architecture. There were no clients. I just made them up because there were no projects for me to deal with. And out of that came Blues and Jazz Landscapes and Urban Diaries, which were kind of two books mm -hmm. that I kind of produced from those exhibitions. And that kind of laid the foundation for the studio. Oh, nice. So unlike so, uh, a lot of people who make projects to start a studio, mine came out of this research, um, which was more speculative. In, in, it was just my design work, my paintings, my work. So Right. And that was funded by uh, the university? A lot of it was funded by the university, yeah. I got grants. I had an NEA grant. You know, I got different grants. And plus, the department has research grants that I applied for every year, working with my students. You know, my students mm -hmm. helped me with the exhibitions. And so it was a time of questioning things. But it really came mm -hmm. out of my education as an architect because I got a master's in architecture. And during that time, architects were not wanting to build. This was, I went to school during the time of deconstruction. And so everybody was like mm -hmm. looking at this, I mean, reading Derrida, you know, and really critiquing kind of the capitalistic kind of context because the eighties had basically created this postmodern world. And so a lot right. of the nineties was really about trying to find a different direction. You know, and mm -hmm. so I took my architecture education and actually that became more beneficial to me in landscape architecture. Right. Because, because landscape architecture doesn't have a strong theoretical uh, sort of history. It kind of, you know, goes into art and design, social factors, mm -hmm. ecology. It's all over the place. All yeah, the totally. Place. Yeah. And uh, at what point did you do your MFA? I did my MFA. Uh, now it's going to be 10 years ago, 10, 15 years, 15 years ago, I started. So, so it we came like, very late, very late. <laughs> right. And so what was, uh, what, what triggered that? I wanted to, I, I wanted to be in a different cultural context. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, for me, it's culture is a huge thing. It's about a space to be in where, where you can, be free to communicate and draw on one another, right? 
And I found mm-hmm. in landscape architecture, culture is just not interesting to me because, you know, landscape architects go from one thing to the next. Oh, okay, it's let's go from ecology, let's go from river restoration, let's go from sea level rise, let's go from blah, 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 blah. It's never, (laughs) you know, (laughs) taking all of these things together. And I find that kind of singular in its sight, right? And I'm much more interested in thinking about things in a multiplicitous way. And art really allows me to like, not again, not define myself. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's the hard thing that you are constantly navigating people saying, you know, do this, do this, do this. And so a friend of mine who was at the Art Institute, a curator, she invited me to, a, to be part of a couple of art festivals in South Carolina. And after that, she said, you should come to the Art Institute. And I said, OK. So I went to the Art Institute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't take it didn't take much. It didn't take much. You were already almost there. Anyways. Oh, nice, nice. Actually, now, um, uh, going off of your comment about uh, landscape architecture, landscape architects are always jumping from, like, one thing to the next, especially when it comes to uh, ideas of ecology and river restoration and all that. Um, In one of your interviews, I think it was uh, the GSD, somebody asked you about... um, you, climate change, yeah, yeah climate and, change. and yeah, yeah. yeah, and uh, kind of like what, 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 like what role it has in your work, and you had a very interesting response where you mentioned that you were more concerned about human change um, because we're culturally broken, and I really wanted you to talk about that and unpack unpack that. Well, it's and I can't talk much about. <laughs> Canadian culture, so I don't know that much (laughs) about Canadian culture, but I find in the U.S. that black life is actually below other things, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, If you cut on our television set at any time, there's just one commercial that drives me crazy, and Mm -hmm. it's of animals and the animals are in cages and there's this music going behind it, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Please help these animals. They're lost. They're strays. Donate money, right? And so yeah. there all there are all of these causes out there in an environment that are more pressing to people mm-hmm. than the lives of me and my ancestors. Absolutely. And you kind of see that now with you know, police shootings and things like that. And so when I answered that question, if you think of climate change and what's happening in most of the places where we live, we've created the, we've created this context. So we put our cities next to rivers. We put our cities next to water, right? We've Mm -hmm. basically taken away the wetlands and we put certain people in certain places. Yes. And our most vulnerable people are in those places that are going to be impacted by climate change. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I, what I was getting at is if we take care of those people, <laughs> we can yeah. take care of climate change. Absolutely. Right? But, 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 but we have to see it through our machinations. It's not an abstract thing. Ecology is not something that's abstracted. You know, mm-hmm. when we build as designers, we're building to hold back ecology, right, to keep things the same because we can't deal with flux. We can't deal with change, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? 
And we put the most vulnerable people in those places that have to deal with that dynamic. So when it floods, the most vulnerable people are in the floodplains. Totally. And so, again, it's, it's if we focus on ourselves and if we see landscapes as something that's the collective, and again, that's something that I'm hoping the pandemic has showed us, that the whole world, all of us, one thing can impact all of us mm-hmm. if we don't think of ourselves as connected or interconnected. And Absolutely. we still have not sort of found that. And so I think yeah. it's easier for people to talk about climate change and one meter of sea level rise versus saying, okay, how do I get rid of this freeway? How do I take these 100,000 people that have been living in this toxic landscape that is Mm -hmm. constantly under threat? How do I provide them with a new place to live? I mean, those should be the things that we should be talking about. But again, our lives are not as valuable as the dolphins, as the fish, as all of this other stuff that people want to put their time and energy in. Yeah, which is so incredibly sad and sickening when you think about it. Um, well, it's privilege. It's privilege. It's. Um, yeah. I was saying something last night. There's a beautiful uh, film uh, by James Baldwin. He goes to um, San Francisco in 1964, and they take mm-hmm. him to the black neighborhood, and you know, he's he's looking around and he's like, you know, this is San Francisco and it's supposed to be this amazing place, but it's like any other place. Right. And he talks about how he's looking across the street at, at this group of black people in front of a church and a couple is dancing. Another guy is like walking or he's in a really beautiful suit. And the guy asked him, what did he see? And mm-hmm. Baldwin says, I see these beautiful people. He goes, this is the thing about African-Americans in this country is that we know our history. Our history is always with us because we know the past. We're taught the past very early. And every day we have to carry that with us. And so that's why we can be joyous. That's why we're creative, because we don't have the time. (laughs) You said the luxury or the time to sit around and invent (laughs) this this other world. We just don't have time for that shit, right? I mean, and so that really stuck with me because that's black life, right? We're, you know, our life is, trauma is always with us, mm-hmm. right? I mean, those things are always with us. And even those of us born in privilege, at a certain point, that trauma is going to come back and smack you in the face when you think that you have this luxury to like... <laughs> have all of this freedom. I mean, and you see that. And so this notion then of, you know, our music, our dress, the way we talk, the way we sing, I mean, all of this stuff is rooted in this dualistic thing of fear on one side and happiness. And that's, that, that should be the construction to me of a civilization where you're kind of tied to the good and the bad. Right. And so some of us have to carry around the good and the bad. And some of us, some of us only get the good. And they're mm-hmm. the ones who have no rhythm and they worry about why they don't have any rhythm. It's because they don't, they're not dealing with this, this stuff. And that's where the rhythm comes from, right? That's mm-hmm. that spirit of being able to deal with these things versus creating a fiction right. to be innocent, to be innocent. Yeah. Hmm. 
That's that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I gotta take a minute there. Oh wow! I was not ready. That was too deep. Huh? No, but it's like you know, it's you know, I was raised partly by my grandmother, and you know, she just did things that I always remember, like. When it was thundering and lightning outside, she would cut all the lights off in the house, right? And light a candle mm-hmm. and we'd read, we'd read the Bible. And I always wondered, and she was like, this is God's time. But she had these mm-hmm. ways of coping with the world. That was right. part of a kind of, of a spirit. And this is what I mean. It's like when you are faced with the trauma and you have to go on, that's mm-hmm. when you develop a spirit. That's where spirit comes from, right? Spirit is not just something that is bestowed upon you, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 the travel, it's the time, it's it's all those things coming together, right? right? That, that gives you that spirituality because you got to cope, you got to cope with it. Right? Totally. I mean, I don't want to be angry. I'm not angry all the time. I could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But yeah. I don't want to walk around angry all the time. But there is this anger in me. Mm-hmm. Right. That allows for certain things to then come out and 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 manifest in different ways. Totally. And I think um, now that you talk about this duality of, you know, the anger and the trauma and the happiness, you know, I think it really comes through in your work because you have this incredible ability to. Um, take on these very traumatic histories, but render them in ways that are beautiful almost. There's like uh, a certain dichotomy mm. in it, which I, um, I I was, I'm actually really curious on how that comes about. Because as a person, you embody that spirit that you're talking about. And I'm wondering now in your practice as a team, Mm-hmm. How do you work together? Uh, what is the culture behind uh, behind your your practice that is able to bring forth like the incredible work that that you do? Yep. Well, you know, we talk about this idea of research, and you know, we use that term. It's not we're not researching doing hydrological maps and all the typical kind of mapping things. For mm-hmm. us, the research is digging into, we start a project, we dig into the cultural history. Or, mm-hmm. or even if you want to call it the ecological, let's call it the ecological history. So if you go to each place, every place has an ecological history. And, and if you want to deal with it head on, then you have to speak truth to it. Mm-hmm. And so, again, like if I think of Oakland, California, the ecological history is here. This was an oak woodland. Right. Mm -hmm. After the earthquake in San Francisco, people came across the bay to build single family houses. They tore down, they cut down all the oak trees. Then you have to understand, well, why were oak trees growing in Oakland? Oakland is a huge alluvial plain and the alluvial plain created this beautiful landform that came out that allowed the oaks to come all the way close down to the bay. And Mm -hmm. so from San Francisco, when people looked over, they could see oak trees. And so they called it Oakland. So, again, once you start, you know, digging, we have a lake here that wasn't really a lake. It was an estuary, but they drained it and made it a lake. And so when you start to piece together all of these things and then you see, you know, along that in the lowest lying places of the estuary. Right. That's all of a sudden became a bay, which is Mm -hmm. different. 
right? They put black people and brown people along that edge. Mm -hmm. And if it's a bay, you don't think about flooding. You don't think about uh, tidal. You don't think about all of those things. But people who live in these places, they have to deal with high tide. Right. You know, they have to deal with the smell of the of, of the of, of the swamps which or the marsh. And mm-hmm. so I was working in one neighborhood and <laughs> this creek restoration people came in. They wanted to restore the creek and the black people were like, we don't want the creek restored. The creek stinks. <laughs> Yeah. The creek will smell. And they're like, what do you mean it smells? Because at high tide, the water's going to come all the way in. And so even people living in those places, they can describe the ecology of their places. And this is, you know, what we're interested in bringing those truths out. And so in every project, then, no matter where we work, we have this saying that there's always have to be something strange in the project. And that strangeness mm-hmm. comes out of that research. And so if we finish a project and there's nothing strange about it, we've failed. I see. Right. And I use strange as something that's more idiosyncratic that comes out of that place. It's Mm -hmm. not something that I bring to it. You know, we're digging for something to come out of that place. Totally. And you spoke earlier about uh, earlier in your career, how the budget was guiding projects and. and Yeah. So how do you deal with budget constraints uh, now in in your practice to make sure that you're you're not being hindered by it? Well, one, we don't go after projects that don't want to invest. Mm -hmm. And if people don't have the way to invest, we work with them to create a structure for investment. Right. Because the first thing that People ask, again, in some of the worst or troubled landscapes, and I'm not talking about people, I'm just saying landscapes that have not been invested in, mm-hmm. people want to spend the least amount of money. And I find that, again, racist. <laughs> right. Because if you go to a place, let's say you go to a place, and for 50, no, for 100 years, you put industry in a place. And then you didn't allow people to go anywhere else. And there's three generations have grown up in this place. So there's no there's no trees. There's no groundwater. I mean, there's just nothing because you haven't invested. Mm-hmm. And and you ask me to do a project and I come back with a budget of 15 million dollars and you freak out. There's something <laughs> wrong. There's right. something wrong where if I go to your downtown and you say design this plaza and I say $15 million, you don't blink. Mm. This is where, that's where we're trying to do the work. And so as I'm working on a project, I just tell people before I start, you know, you got to spend a lot of money here. Right. And you know, at this point in my career, that helps a lot now. (laughs) (laughs) it, it, It used to, you know, we used to have to make, you know, milk out of water, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You figured out ways, but we're at a point now where we can begin to advocate for more investment in different places. And right. it's not always it's not always the case, though. And uh, I'm interested to know um, you are at a point where you're obviously very well established and quite successful. But in the past, um, since uh, the inception of your firm, um, can you speak about like a challenging time or event um 
that has really come to define the way you do things now or that maybe change your trajectory along the way? Well, the first 10 years of my practice, or the first maybe eight years of my practice, I couldn't get work. <laughs> oh, really? Well, because you need work to get work. <laughs> so how did you go right. around that? Well, I mean, you just have to keep trying. You keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. And so, you know, very early I started out, you know, so, so a lot of the installation stuff, a lot of the small stuff, uh, I would have to say Herzog and Dimeron, the architects, gave me my first big, big commission for my studio. And Jacques and Pierre, they were really interested in, you know, we had done a project in downtown Oakland, Lafayette Square, where we talked about, you know, keeping homeless people and all of that. And they really appreciated that project. And these were mm -hmm. two Swiss architects, you know, who were becoming like, you know, these amazing people in the architecture world. So they hired us. And um, that project allowed me to kind of see that other scale of work, because before that we were doing more kind of community-based things. But when you're talking about a museum, $200 million museum, you're talking about mm -hmm. donors and all of this, but you're also talking about blue chip artists, James Terrell, Andy Goldsworthy, Martin Purrier, and, and finally getting to that, being in that context, mm -hmm. but doing the landscape, there was something that became very clear to me at that point. It was like, I can choose to have an, a firm that does service work, mm -hmm. right? Which is not design work. And mm -hmm. the thing that I kept hearing from the architects over and over, we don't do service work. And so they had hired a local firm to do all the stuff and they were the artists. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like when the, when the client asked for drawings, it was like, oh, we don't have drawings. We're still working. You know, they would make 50 models. I mean, like literally for one thing, they would make 50 models. I went wow, to Zurich so to their cool. office and their office, they have stuff, they're making models everywhere. And I was like, whoa. And they never, and one of the things I learned, they never presented a project trying to convince the client, which is a different thing than we do here, mm. right? We, we, we present a project and then we start convincing. Right. Uh, you, you know, we start giving metrics, we start giving this. I mean, they just, here's a design. <laughs> I was like, shit, man. You know, and That's then, next and level then, confidence. Yeah, and then Terrell, you know, artists come in. It's like, so, you know, before we talk, you have to sign this for the money. <laughs> so you start, <laughs> you just start seeing different ways that people ne start navigating. And that became really impressive for me. And that's when I start pushing more towards art. Because what mm -hmm. I was noting that as the landscape firm, we were left just doing other people's work. And we couldn't, even in this context, it was really hard for us to present design work where we were the ones having to deal with the functionality of everything. Right. And so at that point, I said, we're not doing any more service work. This is not going to be service work. We're, we're designers. And then mm -hmm. that helped to kind of create a culture about making you know, mm -hmm. I try I try not to look at I don't look at magazines. I don't you know, I don't keep up with landscape architecture magazine, architecture magazine. I don't look at that stuff. I don't know what's hot <laughs> because, <laughs> because I don't want to know. Right. And so right. those are, you know, ways in which you can cultivate your own 
way of being creative. Mm -hmm. So do you have a, a lab at Hood Design right now? Yeah, yeah, we have a fabrication studio, yeah. Nice. Yeah, we have two separate spaces, yeah, for that. That's interesting. And so how much time do you spend on 3D kind of like fabrication things versus drafting, like more of the conventional? Yeah. Most projects, we start out with three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. I mean, before COVID. I mean, I, we just got back into the studio 30 days ago in the fabrication mm -hmm. lab. But we yeah. try every project, there's something three-dimensional. Nice. There's, there's got to be. I mean, there's something, you know, there's analog, but there's always something three-dimensional uh, because, you know, we're interested in space. Uh, yeah. And interested in materials and interested in how things fit together. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested as a creative director yourself. Um, do you do you always take the lead on like design concepts, or is that something that is done collaboratively? For the artwork right now, I take most of the lead for the artwork. Mm -hmm. For the landscape work, it's much more collaborative because my mm -hmm. principals have a yeah, they have a very clear idea of how we work. Uh, you know, we work in, how can I say, uh, in this multiplicitous way. Like, we don't start with a plan and just do a section. Like, we'll do 30 plans. So we start through this this way of working, you know, like you're making art. And so mm -hmm. it's not about coming up with a composition. It's about thinking. And right. so like like on our Moreau boards right now, it's just like they're crazy they're just <laughs> filled up with, you know, concepts. And it's hard because it's hard to collaborate with other firms then, particularly other right. landscape firms, because they don't work in that way. Most architecture firms work in that way, but a lot of landscape firms don't work in that way. I see. Yeah, actually, um, you mentioned uh, in one of your lectures that one of the challenging thing earlier in your career was that uh, people were afraid to critique you. Um, yeah. and that you, like, it was difficult to kind of get like really good constructive feedback. And I'm wondering that at this point in your career where you're so established, um, do you seek, uh, critique or do you have maybe people that you go to as for a sounding board? Yep. Well, when I was talking, that was more in school that was, you know, in yeah. graduate school. And I see that with our minority students. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, again, people see you as a black person first. And so it's kind of like, okay, I got to like be on egg crates. It's like, hell no, critique my shit. It's always, yeah. I just remember in school, it's like, oh, nice drawings. I was like, fuck you. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> tired. If I hear about yeah. nice drawings, yes, I know I can draw. <laughs> but, but is there <laughs> nice. something else yeah. there? Yeah. yeah. And I would never, I would never get that. And I had one architecture professor actually two who were just really, really good at it. And they were, you know, really, they made a really big impact on me, but it mm -hmm. was really hard, you know, and they were in architecture. I, mm -hmm. I can say, I can say, yeah, I've never had, yeah, I've never had a difficult critique in landscape, right? I mean, it's always, you know, nice drawings or people like, oh, we don't have anything to say or whatever, you know, it was like never, you know, something that, that pushed me uh, to a point. And that's why I said, you know, ar I brought architecture back into landscape, which helped me, mm -hmm. right, find, find, my, find my space. And, you know, today I have, a lot of my friends are artists. 
you know, that I, you know, I'm very close with uh, Rick Lowe, Project Row House, The Aster, um, um, Mary Miss, um, what's her name? Beautiful woman, Carrie Mae Weems. Uh, you know, every now and then I'll call on Martin Purrier. You know, he has become a great mentor, you know, mm-hmm. but these are people that I don't call about the work. I, I, you know, if I'm having trouble someplace right. in my mind, I, I call on them because I, I have utmost respect. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Design Unmuted podcast brought to you by Divine. If you liked what you heard, please rate and tell your friends about it. You can subscribe so you never miss an episode. Find me on Instagram at Ramesha Design Unmuted and also on my website at www.rameshadesign.com. The track you're hearing is called Under the Sun by Kafaye, singer-songwriter and produced by Ozenit or Zenith by Kiga and Sanjan. Enjoy. Enjoy.